Magrathia. It is one of the legendary, advanced economy planets of the human imagination, sitting alongside Asimov's Trantor of the Foundation series and Cybertron, home of the Autobots and Decepticons. Sure, there are other fabled worlds like Cameron's Pandora, Besson's Folston Paradise, Herbert's Arrakis, but these are, let's be honest, emerging economies. What made Magrathia a galactic leader in economic complexity is that it was a planet-building planet. As we learn in Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Magrathia has been missing for 5 million years. By the time we join the story, it is considered long dead. The only being who believed it still existed was the two-headed galactic president slash confidence man. And after some light piracy, mild conscription, and heavy improbability, our party of protagonists discover the planet all but deserted. Actually, not deserted. Asleep. You see, Magrathia's product was a luxury commodity. None of this off-brand pseudo-planet stuff like Pluto. Well, five million years ago, the galactic economy collapsed. The recession came and they decided it would just save a whole lot of bother if they slept through it. So they programmed the computers to revive them when it was all over. The computers were index linked to the galactic stock market prices so that they'd be revived when everybody else had rebuilt their economy enough to afford their rather expensive services. Now, dear listener, you anticipate this setup is likely in reference to our own 5 million year recession now in its 13th year or perhaps a nod to our own computer modeling gone berserk. No, ladies, gentlemen, and galactic visitors, this 23rd episode of Making Sense is about the premature obituary. Magrathia wasn't dead, merely dozing. Our own earthly list of rash declarations are just as entertaining. British musician Dave Swarbrick, after visiting a local township, was declared dead by the Daily Telegraph To which he quipped, it's not the first time I have died in Coventry. American author Mark Twain had to explain on two occasions, the report of my death was an exaggeration. And who can forget King Arthur's quest for the Holy Grail in plague-infested England when the cartmaster asked the village to bring out your dead, only to be presented a very alive, singing, dancing grandpa that had merely worn out his welcome at home. Well, we can add the U.S. dollar to that list. As Jeff Snyder says, the dollar's not going anywhere, except, of course, further up. Hello, everyone. In today's show, you're going to learn about three things. The value of the U.S. dollar, the value of the world's reserve currency, which are not the same thing, and we're going to talk about stocks. All of this is about helping you understand how the wholesale creation and destruction of money affects your economy, your finances, our politics, our society. My name is Emil Kalinowski. This is Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. I am joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments, the, the king of the shadows, a world-renowned shadow money expert. Jeff, good morning. Good morning, Emil. We, I'm excited. One of the things that you do best 
is explain what in the world is happening in the TIC report. And the TIC report it stands for the Treasury International Capital Report. It's produced by the U.S. Department of the Treasury. And this report is not for the faint of heart, but it offers, as you often say, one of our best, unintentionally, one of our best views into the shadows. And you do a two-part uh, two part essay, two-part blog post. They were both posted on August 18th at Alhambra Investments. And we're going to talk about those two blog posts. The first one is called Part One of June Tick, The Dollar What? And listener viewers, you can go to Alhambra Investments to read them. And what would you like to address, Jeff? Why did you want to write about the Tick Report? Well, I think that what you just mentioned first is, is something that we should emphasize as well, is that you know, the Treasury Department, Department didn't start out and set out to try to quantify the global dollar system. This is, you know, they've gathered this, this data together almost by accident, realizing that you know, going back to the 1950s and 1960s and Triffin's paradox and all of those things, that this dollar system, that, that the global reserve currency system of which the dollar is a part, at least under their academic understanding of it, um, they needed to at least try to quantify or try to get some kind of idea of what was going on out there between these uh, you know, various bank cross-border flows, short-term, long-term, all these various activities that take place in the world. And so they began collecting data in the late 1970s. And you know it, it, it basically captures a lot of what does take place. But we also have to remind ourselves, because it's not purposefully, intentionally trying to measure what's actually going on this, this vast euro dollar system. It's only a small snapshot of what's going on. Therefore, we use the data as a proxy. It's not a full, complete, detailed, comprehensive view of what's going on in the dollar system. It's a proxy, but because it, it does seem to approximate what happens in the, in the world and what we see in the marketplaces, the dollar, the movement of dollar, treasuries, all these, all these various things, we think it's a very good proxy. Jeff, you know, it just occurred to me right now as you were explaining that, that yes, you're right. The first data of this report, the first month, is from 1976. And I suppose that's no accident. That's right during the, the, the middle of the case of the missing money with Stephen M. Goldfield. Do you think uh, this was, so you're saying it wasn't a coincidence. They realized, hey, it's been 20 years since this euro dollar system, euro currency system has gotten going and we need to know what's going on. So was it a coincidence? Do you know a little bit more about the, uh, who, who created it, who, who made this report happen and why they did it? Now, I can't tell you the specific history of tick, but I will say that you are, you are right that back in the middle of 1970s, there was a lot of official um, interest, let's say, and at least trying to get a handle on what was going on in the global dollar system. There were, there were, you know, uh, testimony, uh, there were uh, hearings in Congress, for example, on specifically euro dollars. I mean, it's, it's, it boggles the mind given the fact that nowadays nobody's even heard of it. But for a while there, especially in the middle 1970s, which, which is where Tick came from, there was great interest in the idea that we need to understand all of these dollars, quote unquote dollars that are going everywhere around the world where do they come? What do they do? Who's, who's doing what? And how, how are this, these things being done? And then, of course, you know, interest in that kind of died away in the 1980s. But 
for for a very long time it was it was widely recognized and theorized that you know we better understand this thing before it comes back to bite us in the ass and it was because i would i presume because it was clear that inflation was getting out of hand and that the central bankers had lost the thread uh somehow that hasn't reached the politicians recently but i'm sure it will and one day they'll be watching this episode to try to get bone up on what they should be asking central bankers. You talk about the dollar. You want to talk about the dollar. You don't want to talk about the dollar, Jeff. You're sick of it. But you use the June report to make your case that the dollar is not down. Now, in episode 20, part one, we explained the difference between the DXY index, which is what everyone's talking about, which represents the dollar, kind of, is down heavily, multi-year lows. But the other measures of the dollar are not down. Before we get into the meat of the tick report, just a brief refresher. DXY, what is it? What is it saying versus the Federal Reserve's measure of the dollar and what that measure is saying? Well, DXY is ostensibly a dollar index, but it's made up of six currencies, a basket of six currencies. In reality, it's basic. It's not really a dollar index. It's a euro index. It measures what the dollar does against the euro, because I think you pointed out in that episode, Emil, exactly what the weightings were. So if anybody was interested, then go back and look at it. 57.6% is assigned to the euro in the DXY index, while the trade-weighted dollar, as reported by the Federal Reserve, assigns the euro only an 18.9% weighting. Which is still a big weighting. But, you know, the point stands, DXY is essentially a euro index. It's not a dollar index. And therefore, it doesn't really tell us a whole lot about the euro dollar, which is what we're really interested in. Because the, when the euro dollar system is malfunctioning, which we'll get to in part two of our tick study, what that does is it drives the dollar index higher, or the dollar exchange value higher, whether it's in whatever index or not. And so what we're really looking at is if the dollar exchange value is going up, we can infer from it why it's going up. And why it's going up is essentially the stuff that we're interested in, which is the global dollar shortage, as you said at the beginning, monetary destruction in this offshore system. So DXY is essentially, it can be misleading in that it's so heavily weighted for the, to the euro that you, you stand, if, you, if you only look at DXY, which is what most people do and what most people hear about, you think, well, the dollar's really going down, when in fact, most of the people around the rest of the world would say, what are you talking about? The dollar is still extremely high, and it's still a big problem. Okay. So let's link the dollar now to the tick report. And I'm going to, while you're talking, I'm going to pull up the article so that our YouTube audience can see it. And then uh, I'm going to lead you down to a graph and Hopefully you can explain that graph to our audience. What's the relationship between the dollar and what you see in the tick report? Well, again, what we're looking tick is a proxy of the bank bank centered activity that we believe is going on outside of the United States and this offshore system that are, that's centered in the Cayman Islands and elsewhere outside the United States. And so what we're trying to what we're trying to figure out, of course, is whether or not that system is malfunctioning whether it's behaving correctly, whether it's actually recovering for the first time in 13 years or anything in between. And so we're using the tick data as a proxy for that, the, 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 uh, the condition of that system and therefore matching that with what we also see of various prices in various markets, of including 
the U.S. dollar's exchange value because that those two things often go together. So if we see the dollar's exchange value outside of the euro in the broad index going up, that tends to match up with these times in the tick data, other you know banking data, and not just the headline tick stuff. That tells us that something is malfunctioning in the, in the uh, global monetary system. And again. From the big picture perspective, some of the stuff is really simple. When we get into the details, yes, it's very complex, it's very detailed, and it can be often confusing. But from a very high level, it's pretty simple. It's basic economics. Whenever there's a shortage of something, you would expect the price of that thing, a commodity, for example. If a commodity becomes much more scarce, you would expect the price to go up, not down or in between or anything in between. So what we're really seeing is we're matching the times when the dollar price goes up and seeing if we can find evidence for what we're projecting as a scarcity, scarcity in these global euro dollars. So at some point, you mentioned in that article that the Federal Reserve offered swaps to foreign central banks, and these started in late 2007, and they occur whenever something, uh, something goes bump in the night in the euro dollar system. The Fed offers dollars because there's that shortage that you were just saying the dollar's going up why because there's a shortage of dollars so the federal reserve very naturally calls up foreign central banks and offers them dollars but here i have a question here this is the part i don't understand and this is i'm going to quote from your article quote the u.s central bank at the height of gfc2 which was in march and april of this year after much of the system was already wrecked change the terms by which it would offer, presumably, U.S. dollars. And then in parentheses, you say, in the form of bank reserves. Two overseas financial system participants clearly starving of them. Jeff, these swaps, uh, are they U.S. dollars stacked into a nice cube on a pallet? Are they credits to a checking deposit-like account at a foreign central bank? Or are they, as you say, bank reserves? Yeah, they're even worse than that, Emil, because it's not the Fed contracting with banks, even in this case. It's the Federal Reserve offering a deposit balance with foreign central banks. And then it's up to the foreign central banks to then parcel out those bank reserves that the U.S. Federal Reserve is offering to its local banks. At least that's the story, right? And again, what we're really talking about is shortage in scarcity. And so we, the dollar, the financial crisis in March told us, yes, shortage, scarcity, so short and so scarce that it disrupted the entire global system. And the entire global system went into fire sale liquidation meltdown mode. Okay, so it was really bad. And what a lot of people are told to believe is that dollar swaps alongside QE and other methods were a way for the Federal Reserve to do its basic job, which is currency elasticity. And in terms of shortage, that means alleviating the shortage. And it sounds like these foreign overseas dollar swaps would be an effective tool to do that, right? The Federal Reserve is offering what it calls base money, what everybody assumes is base money, to foreign central banks who then redistribute it widely to all of these banks around the world who absolutely need the dollars. And it sounds like, you know, why wouldn't it work? One reason why is, first of all, as you're, you're pointing out, is it's a specific form of money, which is bank reserve, which is not necessarily a useful form of money in this, in this global euro dollar system. But what we can tell from the tick data is these quote unquote overseas dollar swaps didn't stay overseas. 
And in fact, what actually happened, it was absolutely clear from the banking data embedded within tick is that U.S. banks ended up buying, ended up with um, almost the vast majority, vast majority, or even I think uh, almost all of the dollar swaps that were offered. And you can see it, you see it absolutely clearly in the figures. Jeff, am I showing the graph that shows that? Is that what this graph shows? Yeah, and what it what this graph says, okay, first of all, there's two different series in tick when we get into the banking data. The first is what U.S. banks claim on foreigners. That's not what we're showing here. That's what I call the blue series, where U.S. banks are lending dollars and securities and things to the offshore system. This red series is the opposite, because there's always a two-way flow here. It's not U.S. banks lending into the dollar system or foreign banks lending it. There's, there's, obvious, there's, there's things going on in both directions all the time. So what we're seeing here in the red series is what U.S. banks are borrowing from the offshore system. That's liabilities to foreigners. So U.S. banks, in this case, are borrowing from their own foreign offices. So it's not like they're borrowing from counterparty, you know, completely arm's length transactions with other foreign central bank or other foreign banks. They're actually borrowing this, this, this dollar swap amount from foreign banks who happen to be their own offices, either that can be U.S. subsidiaries of American banks, or it could be um, uh, foreign foreign parents who are lending dollars back to their American subsidies in the United States. But either way, it works out to the same thing. The Federal Reserve started in the U.S., offered dollar swaps, an unlimited amount for foreign central banks to access. They accessed about 400 some odd billion at the, at the peak in, in back in April, and therefore. They, did, they took that $400 billion from the Fed and then offered it supposedly to banks in their jurisdiction, which, which is exactly what happened. But those banks in their jurisdiction then took those swaps from the foreign central banks and lent them back into the United States to either their American subsidiaries or their American parents. So the, these overseas dollar swaps, which were meant to um, alleviate this global dollar shortage in this wide, vast offshore outside the United States dollar system didn't actually do that. All they did was go outside the U.S. and come right back in. This is, this is damning, Jeff. This is stunning. And tell me if I have this correct, if I'm explaining it to the audience correctly. We are told to believe that the central bank of the United States is central to the U.S. dollar, that they know what they're doing. Am I correct in assuming that never in their wildest dreams did they imagine that sending dollars abroad into this complex system of uh, non-linearity and adaption and emergence, this amazingly complex system of financial institutions, that that money would then come right back? We're told that they're the center, that they know what they're doing. This seems like a complete failure. and. If they knew this was going to happen, then I suppose, okay, they knew what they were doing and they just wanted to provide funding to U.S. banks overseas. That doesn't make sense. Jeff, is this a damning piece of evidence that you would bring up as an exhibit, you know, people's exhibit A or B or C at a trial? Yeah, I think it is. And it, it goes back to, first of all, the scarcity idea and where the dollar actually is outside the euro. And number two, it goes back to... Um, what does the Federal Reserve actually do? So let's take the second part first. What does the Fed actually do? Well, the Fed just does a bunch of stuff. It basically just waves its hand in the air. It makes all this noise and sound and fury 
so that people believe things are happening. And then it puts very big numbers on these things, so it sounds very impressive. It's what I call the puppet show. And the reason I call it the puppet show is because it's not an effective, technically competent monetary program. It's all for show. The Fed doesn't care where the money goes because they don't know. They, they, they have no idea of knowing. They're just doing stuff to do stuff so that people are impressed that they're doing stuff and then people begin to act in the way the Fed wants them to act. That's expectations policy. And here we are seeing a clear example of how it differs from actual money monetary policy. So what we, we would not expect is this ridiculous, absurd theater to take place where you know, the world is starving for the dollars and the Fed supposedly offers them, but it doesn't actually offer anything, anything useful. And that helps us explain why, when we go back to our dollar index view, why the emerging market index, for example, the trade-weighted dollar index for emerging markets is still up near the top because the emerging market currencies are the ones who are most vulnerable to a dollar shortage. And so if you believe that the overseas dollar swaps are the best way to alleviate a global dollar shortage of which the emerging markets are most susceptible to, then you would not expect to see something like this. However, if you realize, again, using the tick data, what the Federal Reserve is actually up to, and it's, it's nothing more than a bunch of drama and theater, then you would say, yeah, that makes sense. I understand why the emerging market currencies haven't really come back off the bottom because they are complete, they are still dealing with this massive dollar shortage and the problem that the Federal Reserve is essentially ineffective, powerless, however you want to characterize it, to, to, to alleviate. Scarcity and the fact that the Fed is not the instrument or the instrument that's going to be able to deal with that kind of scarcity. Jeff, we're going to wrap up this segment by talking about the Chinese yuan, which is the heavyweight of the emerging market basket of currencies that the Federal Reserve uses as its emerging market U.S. dollar index. But before we do that, I still want to go back just to that idea. I'm having a hard time understanding about the U.S. Federal Reserve offering bank reserves to foreign banks via the cent you know, via their local central banks. Jeff, what good are Federal Reserve bank reserves all the way overseas to a bank in France, PNB Paribas or UBS? What good are they going to, what are they going to employ those U.S. dollar bank reserves that you can only use with the Federal Reserve? Am I correct that you can only use those with the Federal Reserve? And if I'm not correct, how would these, what, what is the thinking there? Well, the thinking there is that it can essentially be a balance sheet tool to plug a hole. You're right. It's not very useful in a monetary sense, at least in the real world monetary sense. But if you have a hole in your balance sheet, for example, you've lost repo funding because you own a bunch of junk on your balance sheet, you could potentially pledge some other junk or maybe even the same junk, depending on collateral rules, with the local central bank. So if you're BNP Paribas and you've got the ECB who has these dollar swap lines with the Fed and you've got a funding hole that emerges because the repo market is rejecting this junk, you could potentially, hold, you could potentially um, post that junk collateral with the ECB instead of the global euro dollar repo market. And so the bank reserves are useful in the sense of potentially plugging a hole in your balance sheet, which, again, is not exactly the same thing as, you know, full on, complete, effective money in it, all its monetary roles. Got it. Let us talk about the Chinese yuan and 
how it is behaving, well, I guess there's, we've seen this before with the Chinese yuan because we've had four euro dollar crises in the last 13 years. And in the third euro dollar crisis, what we saw was that the Chinese currency was falling and their foreign exchange reserves were also falling. Now we see the Chinese currency again performing the cat-like hairball retching, but now we see foreign exchange reserves unchanging. What does that tell you regarding tick and the U.S. dollar? Well, we got to put these things in order. Let's put them in order of cause and effect, okay? The first thing is tick. Tick tells us scarcity, right? That's what we're, again, we're defining. We're defining this, this proxy of the global euro dollar system tells us, okay, something's going on, scarcity. The banking data in particular tells us that the dollar system is not behaving right. So when we expect scarcity, again, basic, simple economics, the price of the thing that's scarce goes up. So that's the U.S. dollar exchange value. And again, if we're talking about China, the opposite of the U.S. dollar exchange value going up would be the Chinese currency, the CNY or Yuan, whatever you want to call it, going down. So we've got tick that tells us scarcity. We've got currency translations telling us, yes, prices is behaving exactly as we would expect during scarcity. And the final piece is what the tick data we're showing here, which is the uh, holdings of U.S. treasuries and, and other reserve assets is how governments respond to that shortage. And what governments tend to respond, and usually through their central banks, what they do is they mobilize their reserves because that's what the textbook tells them to do. The Keynesian, Neo, the Neo-Keynesian textbook says, you have all of these foreign reserves on, in balance, uh, in, on reserve, that's your insurance policy for this, for this exact situation. And so face, and when confronted with a dollar shortage, you sell some of these reserves, liquidate them so that you can you can fill in the hole because you assume it's going to be a temporary problem. So you sell your reserves, you give the you give those dollars into the marketplace that the marketplace can't get from the euro dollar system and that and that buys you enough time for things to correct themselves. So we have all three pieces right here in front of us. The tick data tells us in 2013 or 2014 scarcity dollar starts to behave, CNY starts to fall and then by the middle of 2014 Chinese authorities begin frantically selling off their reserves, which, which I mean, that's a pretty good idea that it, not just that it was a big, not that it was just a dollar problem, but it was a pretty big dollar problem. And more than that, it was a sustained dollar problem, not a temporary one. So we have a really good complete story here from cause all the way to effect. Jeff, I noticed that the, the currency surges, but the reserves, the foreign exchange reserves, didn't and that was right between that was during globally synchronized growth and that could have been a a signal to us that something wasn't quite right right because you and this article right now we've been talking about how the the u.s dollar is not really down and then to provide an example to people as to how they would know if the u.s dollar really was down you provide an example here i'm going to read it out quote and i think what we're looking at that graph there kind of confirms that notion. Okay, so here we go. Let me read the quote. Quote, let's be simple and direct. A real falling dollar, like that which existed prior to 2008, and then again briefly in specific cases between 2009 and euro dollar number two in 2011, would see euro dollars, bank liabilities, flowing back into China. They aren't. 
If Jay Powell was flooding the world with liquidity, they'd show up there too. They aren't. They didn't during globally synchronized growth relative to the increase of the currency, and they're not doing so now. Yeah, and it's again, and we can see the same thing on the People's Bank of China's balance sheet, which is something I always go to uh, as well to confirm our story. You know, it's the last piece of the puzzle. It's you know, what are the Chinese actually doing? And if the Chinese are not are not adding to their reserves, they're not adding foreign reserves or dollar reserves or U.S. Treasuries into their stockpile, and that tells you there aren't dollars flying into China, which there would be if things were as we're as we're being told they are. So the absence of those things is actually evidence of the absence of Jay Powell's flood and uh, re restoration, reflation, re whatever you want to call it, in the dollar system. So it shows us, again, we have cause all the way to effect, including how governments are responding to the initial cause. And that initial cause in, in our consistent story through each of these different pieces and each of these different layers is what flood? What sh I mean, shortage. It's still, we're still dealing with a scarce system. And when we, we bring this back to the discussion about what the dollar's actually doing, if scarcity is going to continue to be a problem, it's going to continue to be a big problem, the dollar's not going to crash. It's just not because there's nothing to make it crash. The Fed cannot, there's only two things that would make the, the dollar actually crash. One is the Fed actually printing money. We know the Fed doesn't do that. We've gone through that you know, numerous times. The Fed isn't doing it. And that's why we see the dollar outside of the euro remaining as high as it is. And the other part of that is what would make the dollar crash is what, other, what everybody else wants to talk about, which is China replacing the dollar system, the dollar losing its reserve status and everybody going to another currency, which, you know, quite simply, I always say, if, if they would have, if they could have, they would have already. The fact that the dollar continues to malfunction the way it is, the dollar system continues to malfunction, and it's still in place, malfunctioning and harming everybody, and nobody can, nobody's doing anything about it, it's very good evidence that the dollar is not going away anytime soon either. So there's neither the political nor the central banking ability to crash the dollar. There's only scarcity. Jeff Snyder, head of global research for Alhambra Investments. You can read his work every week, his essay at Real Clear Markets. And this week's essay is on China and about China's supposed attempt to replace the dollar via the petro yuan. That's a good one. Check it out. But we are going to move on to part two of the tick data. And it's going to get even more bizarre, even more Alice in Wonderland. And we're now going to address the why. Why is the dollar up? And the article is uh, titled Part 2 of June Tick, The Dollar Why. And we're going to start out with collateral. Let me read a quote to you, Jeff, and then you react. Quote, you have to realize the first that collateral is, in many ways, its own currency system. It's hard to get your head around this, especially since what's on the other side of repo, repurchase agreements, is cash. How can collateral be more currency-like at times than cash? Jeff? You know the answer. We just talked about it. Scarcity. It's all about scarcity. I mean, I mean basic economics has always been about scarcity, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a mind-bender to think about collateral and scarcity and how that relates into the monetary system. And it's, I think it's one of the biggest mistakes that even people who pay attention to the repo market make is they only focus on the cash side and forget everything that's interesting, more interesting 
about what's going on on the collateral side. So what we're going to talk about here in this segment is scarcity. Okay, so the first part we established, that scarcity leads to dollar, leads to for, you know official responses to what's going on. Now let's talk about exactly what that scarcity actually means and what it means where it means the most. So tell me if I understand this correctly. Collateral is currency-like, but not for you and I, Jeff, and likely not for most of our audience, but it is currency-like for financial institutions that create modern money, which is credit. Is, do I have my head around that? Yeah, it is. And it's because the, the collateral it sounds straightforward, right? We're already, we're already into you know, what is kind of like a dissonance because collateral is supposed to be like a one-for-one one thing. It's something solid. You pledge it, somebody gives you cash, it's collateral for a loan. And how could, you use, how could it be used in different ways or, or different times? And, um, and it's really kind of a, something that's it's difficult for people to process because that's not how it works under the, in the financial system, especially the global financial system. The collateral is a living, breathing animal. The, this global collateral pool, it, it expands and it contracts and it does all of these weird things to expand and, and when it contracts. And when you understand what those things are and how they, how they actually in, involve all these different pieces, then it starts to make sense about what we're talking about scarcity because collateral is the lifeblood of the repo market. And the repo market is the, basically the center of the global dollar, therefore the global financial world. The repo market is how financial institutions fund themselves. Tell me if I'm wrong, but if not, I'm going to quote you here. Quote, you'd think that would mean, and you're talking about collateral, that someone creates more collateral. But that's not really how it works or where it comes from. Now, Jeff, on Twitter and in the YouTube comments section, whenever people ask me about it, the way I explain collateral, where it comes from, like where the real self-sustaining collateral comes from, is from private enterprises, from businesses, is from people taking plants, property and equipment, raw materials, organization, consulting, and transforming that into something worthwhile, something productive that helps society move forward, something profitable. They turn those inert pieces with know-how into collateral that they can then put up as collateral for more funding from the banking system. I believe that's where real ultimate collateral comes from, but you're saying here, no, not exactly, or at least that's separate, and we're talking about financial collateral. So where does financial collateral come from? No, you've got it exactly right. What you were talking about is actual collateral. What we're talking about is quote unquote collateral, financial stuff, you know, more scare quotes. And why I use scare quotes all the time is because these are fuzzy notions of something that kind of resembles a real world activity. And it's really about financial instruments and financial securities. And we can get into a long involved discussion about the history, about, you know, all the various court cases that establish who owns what and who does what under a repurchase agreement. Why the hell do they call it a repurchase agreement to begin with? These, all of these interesting things that, you know, you know, setting aside the details and just looking at it from above, you start to realize that this is a fuzzy world. It's like almost going from Newtonian physics into quantum physics. We're going into a world where things seem to be very different and what it says in the textbook or even just intuition that you just talked about. I mean, I mean, it's collateral is where we all believe collateral is a solid thing. It's, it's a various, you know, it's a very um, tangible thing. It's a very tangible idea. 
But this repo market collateral is the exact opposite. It's very intangible. It's very fuzzy. It's very fluid and dynamic, which is why the repo market grew from the 1960s forward into this centerpiece, this backbone spine of the entire global system because it was fluid and dynamic and because collateral was treated like some kind of weird substance that could be molded and blended and, and, and folded and whatever we needed it to do. Okay, we're going to now talk about globally synchronized growth and how collateral creation started to reappear again because collateral creation was taking place before the great financial crisis. Whew, oh my gosh, it was a mania of collateral, financial collateral creation backed up by the real economy as well. And then it obviously stopped as everything uh, hit a terrible bottleneck and things broke down. But recently it came back and it was being provided by money dealers. Now, I'd like to, we've all heard the word money dealers, and I know what a, a car dealer is. I know what a card dealer is whenever I go to Casino Royale. But what is a money dealer? If you can give a, a real life example or just a theoretical explanation of what they do, and then tell us what do they start doing during globally synchronized growth? Well, it gets back to the, you know, banking system has evolved along different lines. And we're talking about, you know, not just depository institutions, but also wholesale banking. Wholesale banking is the exchange, this interbank market where we have these specific institutions that perform activities, which essentially redistribute, sometimes create, sometimes redistribute funds all throughout the system based upon where that system, where demand is high and therefore we need to meet it with supply. So they're essentially what we all think of, I think of essential banks. They're the part, they're the parts of the system that actually perform all the activities that make the system work. So in terms of money dealing, they're the ones that are taking in collateral, repackaging it, sending it back out into the system where it needs to go or where they believe it needs to go from a microscopic perspective. So they're the, the centralized engines that recombine, sometimes create and sometimes you know, redistribute and do all of these central activities that make the thing work. So they're money dealing. So our financial conglomerates, everything is all tied together. They provide insurance, they provide brokerage services. So I'm guessing all of the brand name banks that we are familiar with throughout the world, they do money dealing and there isn't a specific set of banks or financial institutions that do money dealing. Like I couldn't say Bank well, of New York Mellon right. <laughs> is a money dealer because so is JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs and BNP Paribas, HSBC and Barclays and so on. Is that right? Yeah. Before the 1990s, there actually was separation there because remember, go back to the 1930s in Glass-Steagall. It was, we, we had depository banks and we had what were called commercial banks and commercial banks were not depository banks. Those were the securities dealers. Those were doing the things that we're talking about, this wholesale things, repo, all of these other instruments that are, you know, they're, they're vital to how the system actually works. We need securities dealers just like we need depositories. But over time, especially offshore as the euro dollar system became uh, more of a, a prominent role in the global financial architecture, banks outside the United States began to really combine depositories and commercial banks into one. And the U.S. was actually at the end of that process when Glass-Steagall was repealed back in the, in the late 1990s because U.S. banks were complaining that they needed to catch up to what everybody else had already done. So essentially, 
the euro dollar story is also not just a monetary evolutionary story. It's a, it's a story about the evolution of banking too, where we combine depositories and commercial banks, these securities businesses back into a single whole, where in a lot of cases you had the depository parts of these banks that were underpinning or backing the securities businesses on the other side. And so it made a very powerful, powerful instrument that allowed the system to get way out of hand, to get way out of control because you had this, what people believed was a solid depository foundation for what were really, you know, some, in some places, insanely stupid ideas. So then what happened during globally synchronized growth? Because the real economy wasn't doing so hot. So was there a lot of good collateral creation or did the, these money dealers say, we're going we're gonna to accept lesser quality collateral for credit creation and global money creation? In a lot of ways, no, it, it was a lot of ways it was, it was almost like going back to the pre-crisis area, but in miniature. In other words, it was like, hey, let's do some stupid stuff again, because that was fun. I mean, we made a lot of money doing stupid stuff, and I want to do some of that again. And oh, by the way, every central banker, every economist, every market, even you know, the bond yields going up a little bit, everything seemed to say, if you didn't really pay attention to it, you didn't look at the details, it looked like, well, maybe, maybe globally synchronized growth is a thing. Maybe there is something here. I mean, it's been... It's already been almost a decade since the global financial crisis. So aren't we due for a recovery? And so the idea, the stupid ideas didn't seem stupid at the time because, you know, they never do. There's always a rational, rationalized basis for it. But in 2017, it really thought, well, a lot of people thought, why not let's do some stupid again? Because, you know, globally synchronized growth gives us some cover. Maybe you never know. Maybe it actually is actually happening. And so Jeff, you show, you've got a couple of graphs that I'm going to ask you to explain what they mean to teach us what they're showing. And let me pull them up here on the screen. So this, this first one, what is this one saying took place both? I see a couple of surges, and I think that's what you were just saying, doing stupid stuff in that middle section between 2008, 2009, and globally synchronized growth, let's say 2017, there wasn't a big increase in what you have labeled as other ST neg sex. What does that all mean? Well, first, again, we're talking about the red series, which is U.S. banks borrowing from counterparties outside the United States. So that's already something. Why are U.S. banks borrowing short-term negotiable securities, which is what we're talking about? Other ST, ST means short-term, NEG means negotiable, and SECS means securities. So these are other short-term negotiable securities, which means they're not, they're not mortgage bonds, they're not U.S. treasuries, they're not any kind of identified thing. And what, what, we've known, what we know that they are is mostly, um, especially since uh, 2016, 2017, these are CLOs, in other words, corporate forms of securitized junk. And what we're seeing in the second spike, especially in 2018, is not a, that's not when those CLOs were manufactured and issued into the market and then borrowed by U.S. banks. That's when the tick data finally caught up with what had been taking place for years before then, because that was a dislocation in the data. And the, and the Treasury Department even said so. They said, you know, we, we've gone back and looked at the CLO parts of the market. And what we found out is that there was a hell of a lot more of them than we ever thought there were. But rather than redo the series, they just they just 
you know, one month it was X and then the next month it was a much higher number. So they basically said, yeah, there's a hell of a lot of CLOs that have, that have shown up on the books or, you know, somewhere in the system um, across the global banking system in the hands borrowed by U.S. banks uh, right around the time of globally synchronized growth, 2016, 2017. Tick data finally picked it up in 2018. Okay, let's move down one more graph. Two more graphs here, pretty important. What are these two graphs showing, Jeff? Let's start well, with the let's first go one. Back. Before we get to these two, we have okay. to back up a little bit and go back to the CLOs because the CLOs, mm-hmm. how are they being funded? We have to think about the, you know, what is, it's not like, you know, you just walk into a store and you buy a CLO and you, you hand over cash for it. That's not how the financial system works. The financial system works as, you know, the repo market, you fund positions, funding leverage, leverage everywhere you can factually find it. So we have to assume that because there's a lot of CLOs entering the marketplace, and also what we know about the repo market expanding at the same time, it's a very reasonable assumption that a lot of these CLOs were some way, in some fashion, being funded in the repo market. And that's what I've been ta- I'm talking about and writing about for, for a couple of years, ever since this stuff was going on. What he's talking about is the potential bottleneck. Because if you understood what actually happened in 2008 with subprime mortgages and how that infected the collateral system, what there is this potential for, this bottleneck, is where you're funding these risky positions in a repo market that may not want to fund those risky positions forever. And if it comes a time when these risky positions, junk CLOs, for example, are no longer usable in repo, it leads to all sorts of bad things. So we see a lot of CLOs. We see the rise in the repo market. We see some data that tells us there's a multiplier effect going on. We see a big jump in securities lending. All of these things are telling us that there's a lot of junk entering the repo collateral parts as the repo collateral uh, pool is expanding in 2017, which is, by the way, that's where globally synchronized growth actually came from. The monetary scarcity from Eurodollar 3 and before was alleviated temporarily by a rebound, a reflation as we called it. But that, with that lay, within that lay this potential for another collateral problem because there was so much junk entering the system and the way it was entering the repo market system. So that's what the, the, this first tick data tells us, confirms what we believe, that there's a lot of junk that had entered under globally synchronized growth and that had gotten repackaged and repurposed and redistributed and all the things that money dealers do that have made the, the repo market potentially susceptible to a reverse, the bottleneck, which is what we've been talking about for years. And then what do we see in this next graph when we see a surge in short-term treasury securities? Two well, that's the you know that's the after effect. that's that's confirmation that yeah there was a bottleneck and we know exactly when it happened it, it did happen finally in March of 2020 as I've shown before and we've talked about that before um, you can match up the worst days in the stock market with what was going on in the Treasury bill market in the early morning as repo trades were being unwound from the previous previous day and dealers were you know all sorts of financial participants were finding that the junk that they had been previously using as collateral in the repo markets was no longer negotiable in the terms that they wanted, it led them to scramble for the pristine, the most pristine of pristine collateral, which were short-term treasury securities, which we otherwise know as T-bills. So T-bill yields absolutely tanked. I mean, they would drop below zero and 
you know, some parts in the mornings during those, those, those worst fire, fire sale days in March, you would find T-bill yields as low as minus 20 basis points. There was so much demand for it. And at the same time, by the way, that's when all of the heavy selling took place in stocks and all sorts of commodity markets and everywhere around the world. So we see the, the after effects of junk collateral hitting the bottleneck and pushing and hurting everybody into the best collateral, which is treasury bills. And what this tick data shows us is, again, remember, these are U.S. banks borrowing short-term treasury securities from the overseas markets, which is an act of desperation. And we've only seen this kind of desperation once before, and that was in the global financial crisis the first time. So the tick data is, again, confirming what we're seeing in all of these other parts of, the, of, it, of not just the tick data, but all these other pieces of information that tell us what, what's really going on in the shadows. Scarcity. Jeff, this report is from the end of June. Uh, that's we're two months after the fact. But still, nevertheless, uh, does the June data show any sort of alleviation of pressure through June that would imply that the, the, the scarcity is behind us? No, and that, yeah, and I think that's, that was the major point I was trying to make was like, look, we're, we've got June data. And it's not two months. It's three months, right? Three and a half months into Jay Powell's presumed flood of all of this money printing that's been going on. And yet we're still seeing U.S. banks borrowing, not just from you know, foreign counterparties, it's other. We don't even know who these people are. Where are these, where are these treasuries coming from? Where are these T-bills coming from? Because they're all, they're all bills. Um, it's, 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 it's an idea, it's, it's, it's evidence, it's confirmation that no, scarcity has not been relieved. And then, okay, that fits into the story we just told about China. The fact that dollars are not flowing, on, flowing into China which then fits into why you know, the U.S. dollar index against especially emerging markets remains as high as it is, which gets back to this whole complete picture of central banks not being what everybody thinks they are in this very complicated, uh, utterly complex, dizzying, confusing global dollar system that from a very high level actually is pretty simple. Scarcity. Jeff Snyder, you can find him on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. You can find me at Emil Kalinowski. Jeff, we have several different perspectives suggesting scarcity. Well, people would come to you and say, yeah, but the stock market's not suggesting any, any scarcity. You just posted an article at Alhambra Investments, August 19th, where you make the case, well, that if you look a little bit harder, you can see that stocks are also signaling scarcity, deflation disorder. Uh, the title of the article is, it's not as obvious, but stocks are more, are tipped more toward deflation too. Uh, why did you write this piece? You just stated it, right? <laughs> it's, you I know, stole it's, your thunder, Jeff. Darn it's it. like the dollar crashing. You know, people say, well, you, you say that the dollar system is still be misbehaving while the dollar's crashing so that you're wrong. And the other part of it is stock markets, especially the NASDAQ zooming into net to these record highs. Obviously, the stock market doesn't agree with you either. What I'm saying is that, no, if you look carefully, even the stock market has noticed that something isn't right. So I'm personally triple-levered Belarusian utilities, but you want to go broader. So let me pull up a graph of four U.S. Uh, stock indexes, and let's talk about them and what you're seeing, because it sounds hard to believe. Stocks are up, Jeff, 
what what can you possibly be saying that they're suggesting deflation? Let me pull them up. But you go ahead and you go ahead and uh, start your thesis. Well, there's you know up is a, is a relative term, right? I mean, because up can mean a lot of things, and if if the record high of of your stock prices is you know barely higher than than the price was maybe three years ago, it, it's not necessarily the same thing as what you're what it's what the what you're meaning to convey in terms of record high stock prices. But you know, let's let's go back to the to the where we're starting from, which is again globally synchronized growth. This period in time where you know everything seemed to be coming together. It looked like the world was finally you know shaking off the effects of the first global financial crisis. And what we found from you know 2016 into 2017, especially latter part of 2017, in the stock market, was that everything went up. It didn't matter what it was; everything was bid, and often everything went up quite rapidly. Um, there was nothing that got left behind, even though the bond market was saying, "Yeah, you know, make, make, you know, we need to be a little bit careful here." The idea was that central bankers had had it right, and not only that, central bankers were actively were acting on their um, their their opinions that globally synchronized growth was something substantial because they were raising range interest rates. Even in Europe, they were talking about doing some of these things. And then, of course, there was quantitative tightening, which, I mean, the Federal Reserve would never shrink its balance sheet on purpose unless things were actually back to normal. And that, that kind of all went into this universal, uniform bull market and share prices in 2016 and 2017. And so what we're looking at right now is the NASDAQ, and that represents U.S. technology companies, the Dow Jones, the 30 blue chip industrial companies in America, the S&P 500, the largest American companies, and then the Russell 2000, the smallest American companies that are publicly traded. So from March 2016, and that was right after February 2016, which is probably the worst, the end of the worst of Euro dollar three, all the way through December 2017, up, as you said, everyone. Then you say between, let's say, January 2018 and the beginning of the landmine, things fragment. I don't quite see it. How did they fragment? Where? Which ones were going where? Well, if you look at some of the other charts, what you start to see is that there begins to be a differentiation. Some of the, some of the other you know, indices start to split apart. Yeah, they, they, they all rebounded, but now you start to see the NASDAQ come to the forefront which mm -hmm. is, I think, um, maybe counterintuitively a measure of actually flight to safety because the NASDAQ is not just technology companies. It's actually just a few specific technology companies. Most of the NASDAQ index is driven by what people colloquially call the fangs, which are you know Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. So it's essentially very top-heavy, and it's the companies that most people perceive, of, perceive as the most invulnerable to anything. And what Monopolies. we start to begin to see is that once euro dollar number four hits, the NASDAQ begins to rise to the top. Yeah, and euro dollar number four took place starting in January. Just a little percolating, just a little bit. Something's going wrong. You hear some things, whispers, rumors of something wrong. Then in September 2018, it translates right into the actual economy where we can see things going wrong. After that, you have another break in your in your graph. And yeah, I is think there that any... was the, 
that was the big break that after the, you know, during 2018, we saw a bunch of stuff happen in the bond market. We saw in curve, curve inversions and Euro dollar futures, May 29th, again, collateral, the, the collateral bottleneck story. And so there, there were, there were warning signs that the stock market, you know, didn't necessarily price to, but did start to pay attention about, but then after, you know, October, 2018, when this landmine struck and things really started to go wrong, that's when you really see this differentiation, this stratification, this tiering process really begin to take hold. And what we've seen over time since late 2018, as this euro dollar number four became really serious and it had turned globally synchronized growth into a globally synchronized downturn, is that the most economically and, and liquidity sensitive parts of the stock market, as, we, as we're showing by different indices, performed very differently since that point. And you know, you look at it, the NASDAQ has performed by far the best because, again, that's flight to safety. That's where the, the best companies are that are invulnerable to everything. At least that's the perception. And then you have below that the S&P 500, which has, you know, some of the same kind of flight to safety characteristics because it's the, the biggest caps, the lar large caps, and big caps are far, obviously less risky than small caps. And below that you have the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which it's in the name industrial average these aren't they're not all industrial companies but they're very heavily exposed to on the ground action in the real economy which since euro dollar number four has been globally synchronized downturn and then finally at the bottom end of the spectrum at the lower end of the tier or the lower end of the of the rungs is the russell 2000 which is encompasses basically almost all the stocks that are in the stock market that are traded and therefore it is highly exposed especially in the smaller caps that are contained within it to the economic circumstances. And therefore, these are, you know, because they're small caps, because they're economically sensitive, these are perceived to be the riskiest. And what you look at from Euro dollar number four, the eruption of Euro dollar number four, and when it became serious in late 2018 during this landmine, these indices have performed very differently. The market is saying it's, it's basically sorting out the stock market instead of we've gone from uniform bull market where everything goes up to now this other period where only certain parts of the market go up. I mean, really go up. I mean, the Russell 2000 is actually lower than it was at its record high. It's lower than it was at the start of Euro dollar number four all the way back in January of 2018. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average is basically flat over that same period. And we're talking about two and a half years. And the S&P 500 has done much better, but it has different, it's, it's not his, it has not performed as, as well as it did during reflation number three. So the stock market, it's not necessary, it's, no, it's nowhere near as pessimistic about the way of the world as the bond market is. But even when you look at stocks up closely, you can start to see that even stock investors are starting to wonder what the hell's going on here. Maybe there is more risk than is being projected and certainly in the mainstream media and most commentary about the markets and the economy, and that things are not as they, not, maybe not as good as they appear on the surface. So I think that's the the story of our uh, of our episode today is that it's all about scarcity uh, and safety. The dollar is still up, uh, Treasury yields are still down, and even the disconfirming indexes like the Nasdaq may not be signaling anything about the health of the economy, but uh, a flight to safety. Jeff, however, in the title of the article. You said that this signals deflation. So as we wrap up this article, what is the 
the tie-in to deflation and yield curve control, because that's how you began the article. And uh, a few episodes ago, actually, I said that yield curve control would be this holiday season's most popular central banking toy. I had, uh, I've been producing racks of garish Christmas centers, Christmas sweaters with YCC emblazoned across the center. But you're saying that there was a press release recently where now they're not as excited about yield curve control and inflation. Yeah, the FOMC minutes for the last meeting, which, you know, uh, the July 2020 meeting, curiously did not contain confirmation of yield caps or yield curve control, whatever you want to call it. So there's there seems to be the, you know, for a while there, everybody was on board with yield caps because interest rates appeared to be rising. And we were told that inflation was our biggest risk. Therefore, rising rates would potentially choke off the recovery. And then all that kind of just disappeared. And now we got official confirmation, quasi-confirmation, where the FOMC is not really talking about yield caps and yield curve control anymore. And why would they? Because <laughs> yields are not going anywhere. There's really no danger of rising interest rates. And oh, by the way, if you look at the stock market, as we just said, if you really look at it closely, stocks are not necessarily on board this inflation story, which would, which would necessitate yield caps if it was real. So when you look at the different parts of the market, even the stock market is saying, eh, I don't see the need for yield caps either. Inflation expectations are not making their way all the way through the market. And I, you know, as we said, I would argue that the NASDAQ acting the way it is, isn't inflation either. I think that's completely a flight to safety because, again, first of all, when did the NASDAQ really start to outperform? And what is the NASDAQ index actually telling you? When you put all these things together, putting the whole show together, all of these markets are at, at least concerned about, if not confirming, the idea that there was no flood, dollar scarcity is still a big problem, economic concerns are still the major part of everything, and that, that's deflationary rather than inflationary. And deflationary in the colloquial sense, not the 1930s, you know, consumer prices and producer prices are going to crash by 50% kind of a sense. The idea that the monetary system is going to continue to be a drag on growth and activity, which in this context means lack of recovery, L-shaped, more L-shaped, less V-shaped. And that there may be another shoe or two to drop and uh, we'll be there to cover it play by play. Jeff, let's leave it there and uh, reconvene again next week. All right, Emil, take care.